Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 412th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, and we're going to be talking about English execution and exile. The history buffs for today's show are Ed and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, which is called Farouk Tenaren, and today we'll be talking about English, execution, and exile with Dr. Larissa Tracy, uh, goes by Kat, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. Welcome back to the show, Kat. Hi, it's nice to be back. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. As an Irish-American, I had no idea that the English executed and exiled. Uh, can, <laughs> I'm so shocked. Yeah. They really did this. Yeah. Um, so could you explain to our listeners a little bit of their background on capital crime in the medieval and early modern periods? Absolutely. Um, I, I'd like to preface this with saying that it's not just about English exile and execution. I'm actually working on a book project that deals with exile and execution in medieval and early modern society as a whole, because medieval and early modern societies approached execution in different ways, but many of them had execution as one form of punishment and exile as another option. In fact, part of the reason that this book project came about was because my co-editor Gila Alone and I realized that execution and exile have a symbiotic relationship in medieval and early modern society. A lot of people assume that execution was rampant, that re- execution was the primary form of punishment of just about anything, and that you could lose your life at the hands of the state for the slightest infraction. Now, that does happen in the 17th and 18th century. But when we're talking about the medieval period, particularly the early medieval period, up to about 1,000, execution is actually fairly rare. In English law, it's exceptionally rare. English law, execution is reserved for the gravest of crimes, generally for crimes like murder, and as we get into the high Middle Ages, for crimes like treason. Otherwise, you might pay a fine for a crime. You might be punished through mutilation, like losing a hand, having your ears clipped, or you might be exiled. In early medieval England, in the period before the Norman Conquest in 1066, exile was actually far more common because removing the exiled person from the society, in some instances, could almost be a death sentence because they lose their community. They lose their people, their home. Often they lose their income. They lose any wealth that they have. And so in a lot of cases, exile was a much more enduring punishment than simply executing them. And so when we look at the idea of execution and exile in medieval literary sources, sometimes they stand in for each other. You might have somebody like Dante, who in 14th century Italy, Florence, he's exiled. And to him, it's almost like living death because he has been separated from the city he loves, from his entire political career, and he is forced to never, ever return to Florence. And of course, the product of that is the Divine Comedy. Going even further back, Roman authors like Ovid, he was exiled. 
And the same thing, separated from his life, his community, his people, he felt as though he was living a living death, and he produces the metamorphosis out of that. In England, it's no different. You have stories of exiles in early Old English poetry, like the wanderer and the seafarer, the people who are cut off from their community, who are forced to stir the cold, the ice-cold waves with their hands as they seek a new land someplace to live. And it is almost put in terms of death. Now, execution itself, the actual act of state-sponsored or state-sanctioned murder or killing, because, of course, if you can justify it by law, it's not considered murder in the Middle Ages, that kind of punishment was very final. And the only person who could generally levy that kind of punishment was an authority figure like a king. Now, execution becomes far more common as we get into the period of Roman law after the 12th century and after the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. And execution becomes far more common in the cases of treason. And most of the treason statutes, as you may remember from one of the last shows I did with you guys, treason, of course, only really starts getting defined in the 13th and 14th century. So execution becomes tied to those capital crimes and those crimes against the state. And you end up with this desire to have a spectacular public execution, not necessarily as a deterrent, but as a mark of imprinting the power of the state on the criminal's body as they are being punished. And people would turn out for executions because it was a big spectacle, partly possibly because it was gruesome, but also because this is reinforcing the power of the state. And there is a lot of debate in the last 10 or 15 years about how much medieval people enjoyed watching executions. Did they really just go and love the gruesome spectacle? Or was it meant to be a deterrence against any other kind of uprising? There's a lot of questions in there about you know, the motivation and how an audience reacted. We don't have a lot of audience responses. But as we get into the early modern period, especially in the 16th century in England, executions were spectacular political and legal performances that were meant to essentially get one message across to the audience, and that was the absolute power of the state. So execution and exile both kind of function as a means of punishment. But as we get into the later Middle Ages, execution really takes on this form of gruesome spectacle. And that becomes one of the enduring mythologies in the modern imagination about the Middle Ages. Kat, I'm glad you brought up you know how execution works um you know even back in in greek times we have socrates who chooses to commit suicide rather than being exiled um can you talk a little bit about what medieval literature you know how it describes someone who's being exiled um and uh you know so that so that because i think our listeners tend to assume you know, gee whiz, so you just move down the road to the next town and everything turns out, you get a new job, we change, I change states all the time. Um, and, and it really, the, the, the medieval doesn't work, the medieval world doesn't work like that. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm actually glad you brought this up because I was just discussing with my students in my culture of medieval violence class, the old Norse Icelandic text Njal Saga from the 13th century. And one of the main characters, Gunnar, is outlawed 
And in Icelandic society, if you are outlawed, you are either exiled from Iceland, so from your entire country, not just your immediate community, and you are either outlawed for a period of three years or you are outlawed forever. And in Gunnar's case, in the literature, he is so enamored of Hildrendi, his homestead, that as he's leaving to go on the three years of outlawry, and you're thinking three years, what's the big deal of three years? Well, for Gunnar, Hildrendi is his land. It is the freedom of land ownership and status and his place in the community. And he's riding away on his horse and he falls off of his horse. And when he gets up, he looks back and he sees the homestead from afar. And he's just struck by the beauty of the landscape, but also the meaning that that landscape holds. Because for Icelanders who until 1252 had no king, they had an, a landed system of individual chieftains and status was based on land ownership. The idea of losing that means losing his very identity. And he just can't do it. Even though it's only three years, he just cannot leave that land. He cannot leave his homestead. And he goes back. But because he's an outlaw, his life is forfeit. Anybody who wants to kill him can do so without facing any repercussions of law. There are no repercussions in terms of compensation, and there, is, there are no repercussions in terms of being killed. So when he goes back to his homestead, he's basically declared open season on himself. And sure enough, 40 men come to Hildrendi and attack him, and he is killing them left, right, and center because he's a brilliant warrior and there's a there's a moment where one of the attackers goes to report that Gunnar may be home I'm not sure but his halberd is as <laughs> the halberd falls out of your man's body and he drops dead and Gunnar ends up dying because his bowstring breaks and his wife Halgard who is a piece of work Halgard <laughs> refuses to give him strands of her hair yeah. because he slapped her once and so he gets killed because he can't restring his bow but leaving the land was so hard for him, even for three years, that he goes back and essentially forfeits his life because he couldn't face exile for three years. That's a hateful and grudge. Pass, <laughs> well, exactly. Oh, it is. And Holgerd holds a grudge. Business. I'm married to a um, Scandinavian woman. I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> So you, so you, you have probably heard of Halgard. Uh, yeah, her, her hair isn't that long, thank God. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and you might not need it to string your bow. Right. Well. But in this instance, it's just the, the the idea of exile, particularly when your community and your identity centers around the people where you live and where you grow up. All of these things, the prospect of being cast out of that society, is. It is like death. And now there are those who took voluntary exile, who went on pilgrimages, or who took voluntary exile for religious reasons. And that's a completely different category of exile. But punitive exile, it was essentially like saying you are no longer a person as far as we're concerned. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
the 88.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. The second segment of the show is referred to as The Kitchen Table, and our guest for today is Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, Professor of Medieval Literature at Longwood University, and we're talking about execution and exile in medieval and early modern Europe. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Cat, um, um, were there any people during that time period, um, the time periods we're talking about, that were writing about the um, prospect or the possibilities that innocent people were being exiled and executed? Uh, or was there so much um, state pressure against that that if you spoke out, you might be the next one on the block? Well, that's a very good question, and it's a very complicated question. It largely depends on where you are in medieval Europe, because an awful each each jurisdiction has its own structure of laws, and before the church imposes certain rules on interrogation in 1215, you had a system of accusatio, so accusation. And in those circumstances, somebody could be accused of a crime, and it was kind of up to them to prove that they hadn't done it. And very often, that would take the play, that would take the form of ordeals, where they would stick their hand in boiling water or pick up a burning ingot, and if they weren't wounded much, or if their if their hand didn't fester three days later, they were innocent, and then the person who accused them might be punished instead. Well, at that point, accusing somebody had almost immediate consequences. You had to go through the system of laws, sometimes for compensation. Exile was rarely a punishment in those cases. Now, you would be exiled for something like murder, but you had to prove it. There had to be evidence that you'd done it. So there was far less likely a chance that somebody innocent of murder would be exiled. Um, when it comes to things like execution later on, well, this is where you get the whole system of, in England, jury trials, because Magna Carta in 1215 actually dictates that you will be tried by a jury of your peers. Now, that does largely apply to landholders rather than your average serf, but you have a, a jury system. And so there was a real interest in trying to make sure that if somebody was going to be punished for crime. That they, w- that they would be guilty, and that you wouldn't accidentally punish somebody who was innocent. Unfortunately, after the Fourth Lateran Council, in a lot of places in Europe, this means the introduction of torture as part of the interrogation process. And if you had at least two proofs against somebody, and you had some evidence, even if it was somebody's eyewitness account, or um, physical evidence, or their reputation, then they might be able to apply torture. And then the person would hopefully confess or not and then be punished. In England, of course, that didn't apply because torture was illegal. 
Kat, let me just kind of tack on to that. I think there's also a misconception. You're talking about, in general, very small communities. Um, the yeah. reason that the, the, the medieval system of law, which looks really weird to us, the reason it worked was in part because you really did know who did it. You're talking about very few people. It was it was not impossible, certainly, but it was rare to have someone to for the the whole community to be to, to be so confused that they got the wrong guy. You you kind of knew yeah. or or woman. So I think that helps as well. It's as you get further into the Middle Ages and early modern. I think as population centers begin to grow, it starts to become harder and harder to identify the good guys and the bad guys. Absolutely, and of course to add to that. The punishment of exile, when you have larger populations and larger communities, the prospect of being exiled does not necessarily carry the same weight. Okay. Terry, you have a question. Yes. Um, Kat, can you talk about some of the most common crimes uh, during the Middle Ages and what would be the re repercussions or the punishments for those crimes? Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> again, the top each four. jurisdiction had its... <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that is a massive, big, massive, big question, but I'll do my best. Um, each jurisdiction had its own punishments and penalties. Um, there are catalogs of, uh, of monetary compensations for various crimes and inner injuries. You have them in, in pre-conquest England. You have them in Phrygia. You have them in the Frankish kingdoms and then the Holy Roman Empire. So you might have things like theft. Theft was very common. Theft is probably one of the most common crimes. And it depends on what you steal. And it depends on how often you've done it. Some, in some cases, you might be able to compensate with money. Now, of course, chances are if you're stealing something, you probably don't have any money to pay a fine. So you would, you might be branded, or your ears might be clipped, and that you know you just have your ears would be cut on the cartilage. Um, if you did it again and got caught again, you might lose a finger, you might lose a hand. It entirely depends on which jurisdiction. Rarely would somebody be killed for those kinds of crimes, like theft or theft, theft. <laughs> I'm trying to think the other ones. You get into issues of things like forgery. If you if you forge coinage, that's a death penalty. That's a death penalty because if you are making counterfeit coins, you are reproducing the image of the king. Therefore, it's a crime against the state. But that's in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, as the laws change and as power becomes more consolidated around the central figure of a king, that's when you start to see the punishments and the penalties get worse. And by the time you get out of the Middle Ages and out of the early modern period into the 17th and 18th centuries, that's when you start to see a lot of really heinous crimes for minor infractions. But in the Middle Ages, they needed people to still be productive members of society. If you're going to stay in the society, we need you to still produce stuff. We need you to still be able to use your hands or conduct your business or plow a field. So they're not going to do anything to you that would prevent that. Okay. I'm not sure if that's entirely answered your question. <laughs> okay, a quick question then along that, cat. Of course, since you talked about during this time period, communities are, or as Jay was talking too, they were more, they were smaller, they were more interlocked because you knew who the individuals were. Well then, I'm sure that maybe some communities were what would say more educated because you have those individuals, let's say probably around possible churches or 
institutions of education. Are there areas where you have the records of the crimes carried out that are more specific and documented and some areas of the of England and other parts of Europe where like the crimes are going down but they don't have the people to document it did you find that or is that off base well there are there are loads of records in fact there's some amazing studies done on homicides um, in the 14th century there are large databases being compiled at current scholarship that basically goes through all the records um, of the various and sundry crimes, what the punishments were, how, you know, how somebody was injured, how somebody might have been murdered. Um, there, there are detailed records. Once you have written laws, you have written law keepers. So you have people who will keep those laws, keep chronicles, keep records in writing. And so there are, depending on where you're talking about, but for the most part, any place that had a written set of laws also had records of who broke them. Okay. Um, I'm curious, again, because your your specialty is literature, um, how does the, the concept of execution play out within medieval literature? Do you see it? Do you see it much within literature? Is it dealt with differently in different time periods or... Um, because one of the things I know, you know, legally is it, it didn't, it not only mattered what you did, but who you were and who you did it to. Does that play out in the literature as well in terms of how execution is managed or talked about? Absolutely. Um, in fact, some of the best examples are literary examples of execution. And some of the most gruesome torments and the gruesome executions are actually, in some respects, only in literature. One of the best examples is the, the torture and execution of Ganelin in Song of Roland. Now, the Song of Roland, the one complete text we have, survives from the late 12th century, possibly 13th century, depending on who's dating it. But in that text, Ganelin, who is the brother-in-law of Charlemagne and the uncle of uh, Roland, who ends up getting himself killed, him and 20,000 of Charlemagne's men killed, but he is seen as a traitor, and so he is rather famously beaten, put on trial, and the trial includes even a jury. It then includes judicial combat. He doesn't fight. He has a champion who fights for him and loses. When he is finally punished, he is pulled apart by horses. It is called equine quartering. The only problem is there's almost no evidence that that was actually done in reality. Now, it's a spectacular punishment. And as a literary motif, it indicates the way that Ganelin is seen in the text. And there are two ways to read the text, either that he is the worst possible traitor, he deserves that because he betrayed Roland, or as a criticism of Charlemagne for breaching his own traditional laws by executing Ganelin, who really isn't necessarily at fault for Roland's death because Roland's a bit of an idiot. Well, <laughs> depends on your, your, depends uh, on your perspective. And it's but, historically accurate that Roland could take the sword and cut the knight and horse in half oh, with yeah, one yeah, swoop. So, yeah, Absolutely. so you know, there's, the book's oh, yeah. loaded with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ed, you yeah, got a exactly. question? Well, and that's the thing, is the exaggerated violence kind of makes you wonder... 
well, if you're not meant to take that seriously, why would you take Ganelin's punishment seriously? Right. And the fact that he's ripped apart by horses, well, horses don't do, they don't herd like, they don't go in opposite directions like that. So if you're tying somebody's individual limb to a horse, separate horses, and then you want to get the horse to go in their own separate direction, good luck with that. <laughs> they tried it in the 16th century, I believe, for the assassin who, um, who assassinated Henri IV, Henry IV of France, and they found out it didn't work, and they ended up having to saw through the joints in mm-hmm. order to get the limbs to, to pop pull off, off right. as they pulled the horses in opposite directions. Yep. Um, Ed, we'll let you have the last question. Well, it's a great comfort that they got that figured out. Right, finally. right, absolutely. <laughs> you you gotta make first. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little more about? Um, well, let's, let's uh, speak of a hypothetical question. You've just been exiled, um, yes. and you're not in England. Um, what's your best scheme for where you will go and how you will manage to survive? Well, I guess it depends on which period in England we're talking about. So if we're talking about, say, pre-conquest England, if we're talking the 11th century, maybe the 10th century, I would go to one of the Scandinavian countries. I would go to the continent, actually probably cross the English Channel because it's closer, and or, or even go to the Isle of Man or Ireland. And... Depending on my skill set, I might seek the patronage of the local lord or the local chieftain, and I might offer my services. So if I'm a warrior, if I'm good with a sword, which might be how I got exiled in the first place, if I'm good with a sword, I might go offer myself as a vassal or as a thane to a local chieftain and basically try to prove my worth. And in, it depends. They might take you in or they might not. Um, that is actually an underlying theme in Beowulf, because Beowulf's father, that's exactly what happens to him. He is exiled because of a blood feud, and King Hroskar takes him in, pays his debt of Weregild, and so when Beowulf shows up to kill their Grendel problem, he's paying his father's debt to Hroskar. So... That would be one way to do it, is to find another place that's nearby enough where they speak your language and where you can offer yourself in service. Okay. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show, Kat, and we got about a minute left. So why do you think knowing about the earlier forms of punishment is relevant in today's world? If we consider the world we're living in now, where millions of people have been in self-imposed exile because of COVID, and we consider the current debates regarding law and justice, and I live in a state that just made capital punishment illegal about two weeks ago. These questions of exile and execution are absolutely prominent in the mindset of people all over the world. And by understanding the historical reality of both exile and execution in its various forms, it gives us a better sense of where we are in our own historical moment, but perhaps and potentially how we can do better than they did a thousand years ago. All right. When we get back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 412th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. And we've been talking about execution and exile in medieval and early modern Europe. The history buffs for today's show were Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on station KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, executed and exiled historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.